how to see and share Jesus from all of Scripture, well, learn with us at the Christ Centered and Clear podcast. Welcome to the Christ Centered and Clear podcast. Today is our last episode on the book of Proverbs. It's actually a lecture that Nate Aiken gave at the Christ Centered and Clear conference in Scotland. In this lecture, he talks through the overall a picture, the overall theme of the book of Proverbs. We think it'll be a helpful way for you as you try to better understand how this book of wisdom points us to Jesus Christ. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, we're going to be in Proverbs, so turn to Proverbs 9 as you're turning there. I just want to say it's a joy to be here. I love uh, what we're trying to do with Christ Centered and Clear. And um, I will say at the outset of this, so my twin brother, I have a twin brother. He's three minutes younger than me, but he did his PhD on Christ and Proverbs. He, the commentary you were given today was my twin brother. Uh, so he's a younger brother in my mind, and yet I've learned so much from him on Proverbs. I'm so glad he's not here when I share that with everybody because, you know, your younger brother should learn from you. Uh, much of what I'm going to give you as far as even some of the at the outset is, is shaped by my twin brother. But I just kind of assume since we shared a womb together, we can share content together in a sermon. So uh, I, I will, I'll just take a little bit of credit along the way for some of his work. Because, I mean, uh, you don't become the man you are unless your older brother is a man to look up to. So I'm happy to work through Proverbs. Now, Proverbs, as we think about Christ in Proverbs, Proverbs is an attractive book for kind of week-in, week-out preachers because it gives tangible, everyday life application. But because of that, uh, it can be both for Christ-centered preachers, but just expositors in general, Proverbs can, pre- can kind of create a dilemma for us. Part of that's because uh, expositors may be frustrated by the layout of the book. It doesn't just sort of flow very easily. It doesn't arrange very well because chapters 10 through 30 are really just a collection of wise sayings. They're not necessarily grouped together, and we may look at some of that along the way. But, uh, and, and, you know, at first glance, uh, Proverbs, even for the Christ-centered hermeneutics guys, can pose a dilemma because much of what we find in Proverbs is kind of under the heading of do, rather than the kind of glorious done of the gospel uh, that we see in the work uh, of our Lord Jesus. And so uh, there's this, maybe this thought in in one sense that it's a collection of Aesop's fables. Like in our country, we have, used to have in the newspaper, these Dear Abby letters do right uh, for a good kind of wise moral advice. But nonetheless, it is just advice, advice abstracted from the gospel. So there's legitimate concern uh, as we think about how would we uh, even preach Proverbs in a way that would be presenting itself kind of messianic hope uh, and this, this idea of being Christ-centered. And the truth is wisdom is set up against foolishness. And we see that here in the book, meaning we should not just think about wisdom being set up against the lovable fool. Like sometimes we think, hey, foolishness is just like in in our country, we had a show called Saved by the Bell. And there's this character named Screech, who was just kind of this lovable idiot. And they think that's the fool. But when we look at the book of Proverbs, that's not what the fool is. Okay, that's not what foolishness is. Foolishness is pictured as a path that is leading somebody on a road to destruction. Sin is a path that leads us to destruction. You know, there's a church in our area, so I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina. There's a church in our area that has, as one of its main tenants, uh, sin is just not that big a deal. And they're, they're trying to try to help people see, come here, learn about the gospel. But it's a, it's a very terrible core tenant, right? Because the truth is, foolishness, sin destroys lives. 
It destroys families. You know, it destroys marriages. It can create lasting harm with relationships. And so foolishness is not some kind of neutral thing where it's like, again, the lovable idiot. Instead, no, foolishness, sin, uh, is something that is leading us down a path of destruction. And so there's more going on in Proverbs than just this collection of of wise sayings, of just good advice. But as we argue, is again, because we are part of Christ and clear because we believe uh, that the New Testament is clearly teaching us that all the scriptures are about Christ, there's more going on than just that. In fact, uh, we see this in uh, 1 Corinthians 1, that, that Jesus has become the wisdom of God for us. And so there, there's a lot going on in this text. Interestingly, as we think about Proverbs, uh, the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2, uh, 2 Timothy 3, excuse me, as he's writing to his young protege Timothy, he says uh, that, that uh, the, all the Old Testament scriptures, the sacred writings are able to do what? They're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus, through faith in Christ Jesus. So why would Paul say that? He, again, he sees all of the scriptures as pointing to Jesus, uh, and he's saying, particularly as he thinks about something like Proverbs, that these writings, these sacred writings that we're looking at, are able to make you wise uh, for faith in Christ Jesus. And so uh, there's much going on here in the book of Proverbs. So I just want to, at the outset, I'm going to sh- kind of show you two ways I think you can preach Christ in Proverbs, and then I'm going to hope to demonstrate it by looking at Proverbs chapter 9. Two main ways that we can get to Christ in the book of Proverbs uh, every time that we preach. Uh, and, and again, there, I hope to show this with Proverbs 9. The first one is this, Jesus is wisdom. Okay, I've already quoted 1 Corinthians. If you're Donald Trump, you call it 1 Corinthians or Don Carson, 1 Corinthians. Choose which one of those two you would want to be. But 1 Corinthians 1.30, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Much of this sort of kind of preaching of Christ in Proverbs is Jesus is wisdom is going to kind of fall in the category of how Tim Keller presents things a lot of times. Kind of here's the standard. Okay, here's, here's what the Bible is requiring of us as humanity. Here's how we have broken that standard. Jesus, as opposed to that, did not break the standard. And in grace, he died taking the penalty of the one who had broken that standard. He's, in, in the sense of Proverbs, he's taken the place of the fool And then because he is no fool, he walks away from what seems to be irreversible death and then gives over, imputes over to those who are found in him life. Uh, And then uh, he, by faith, gives them uh, his spirit. And so he empowers them to go and do likewise. And so that's one way that you can preach Christ in Proverbs. Here's the standard. Here's what it looks like to live a wise life. Here's how we fall short of that. Here's who did not fall short of that. If we can be found in him, we can both be forgiven of sins, but also empowered to live that sort of life uh, in the future. The second one is this. Jesus is the son that Proverbs is talking about. Okay. So Jesus is wisdom. Jesus is the son. Proverbs is a book about Solomon training his son, the heir to the throne, to rule the kingdom by wisdom. And I'm going to hope to, again, draw this out in Proverbs 9. Again, my, my twin brother John makes this argument in his dissertation that Proverbs on its own terms is atten- intentionally developing its own messianic expectation. We will see Proverbs is a royal book. Here's why it should read, in some sense, it reads kind of like a training manual for kings. It's Solomon having his son work from the ABCs all the way up to more uh, specific uh, and more important things. 
Proverbs, again, is Solomon training his prince, training the prince to be the ideal king who will usher in the Messianic kingdom. Deuteronomy 4, 6 equates the law and wisdom together. The wisdom is simply the daily living out of the Torah, the daily living out of the law. Deuteronomy 6, teach children to keep this law. Then Deuteronomy 17 says the king is to have a copy of this law that he writes down that is going to help perpetuate the dynasty. So then, again, here's the argument. Proverbs then is Solomon doing Deuteronomy 6 for the purpose of Deuteronomy 17. So he's doing Deuteronomy 6, teaching his children to, to live in light of the law so that his son can live out Deuteronomy 17 and have this law inside him. Okay, so this is what we see uh, kind of going on. It's interesting, too. You see uh, very easy to kind of exposit chapters 1 through 9. They, they, there's, there's a natural flow. We're going to look at the end of that prologue uh, this morning with the, with the bulk of our time. But then in 10 through 30, again, you just get these kind of couplets of wise sayings all along the way. And again, my, my brother's argument is that is simply Solomon carrying out the Shema. As they're walking along the road, he's giving little sayings of wisdom in line with the first five books of the Bible, teaching his son how to live out daily wisdom. And so he's not just sitting down and doing a lecture with his son and saying, hey, now let me just teach you everything I know about money. No, he's, he's, he's kind of along the way as things come up, he's using teachable moments to teach his son wisdom. He's not sitting down and saying, all right, I'm going to tell you everything about relationships and sex now. No, instead he's just doing this as he's going along the way. Uh, we uh, love to watch college American football, uh, and that's partially because when we were kids, we would sit down with our dad. I have three brothers. We would sit down with our dad. We'd watch football all day on Saturday, but all along the way, we would have conversations about really serious things, and it was just my dad, as the days are going by, as we're just doing normal life together, teaching us uh, things of the Lord, that's exactly what Solomon's doing in Proverbs 10 through 30. And the historical context that we see for Solomon himself shows us that the king needs wisdom. And the very thing he asks for in order to rule the kingdom well is he asks for wisdom. So uh, we will see this as a royal book, some sense of fairy tale. This, this idea that you're going to have this prince who's going to then choose wisdom, marry the right woman, and because of that he's going to rule the kingdom well. But sadly... Proverbs 30, if you read it closely, Proverbs 30 brings crushing disappointment from the prologue. Again, I'm going to try to make these connections along the way. But interestingly, picking up the language of Proverbs 9 that we'll read in just a second, the son king in Proverbs 30, uh, in chapter 30 and verse 3, will say this, I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. And so we see this kind of expectation for the king, this prince to become the king, but yet we're ended uh, at least we're going to show at least a little bit, there's this disappointment that the son has not actually done what Solomon's asked him to do. And this plays itself out with all of Solomon's actual children, save, save one. And, and we'll, again, make comments. So that's the backdrop to Proverbs chapter 9. I'm going to read uh, the text, and then again, I'm going to pray a little bit and ask for God's help as we work our way through. And this is the end of the prologue, Proverbs chapter 9. And Solomon writes this as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her bees. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the high places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. 
Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And again, Proverbs 30, the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me, your days will be multiplies and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there. That her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Father, thank you for this time together with these uh, brothers and sisters. And to think on how do we teach uh, clearly from the wisdom literature about your son. Father, we are thankful for your word, which is certainly able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, now would you train and instruct us in righteousness. Father, would you help us to see you, then to see our sin, and then to ultimately see our Savior. Father, would you give us great favor in preaching your word week in, week out to your people so that they're edified in the faith and that they make an eternal difference in the lives of others. Would you help us now to think on these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the, the, the question of who you will marry is a massive decision in your life. And, and I, again, I, I grew up as the oldest of four boys, but I got married later in life. Uh, and so despite people always trying to set me up, my parents were always trying to set me up with people. Uh, and I got this reputation that I was afraid to walk down the aisle. Okay. It wasn't necessarily completely off. When I was four years old, me and my twin brother were to be ring bearers at my aunt and uncle's wedding. And when the, when the ceremony started, I got scared and I stayed at the back and didn't go down. To this day, it's nearly 40 years later, to this day, my aunt and uncle still prefer my twin brother to me. <laughs> They'll say things like, John delivered while Nathan quivered. They make these little cute sayings about it. Uh, but eventually I did make my way down the aisle. I'm, I married Kelsey. We've been married almost five years now. It's, it's been wonderful. And then, you know, family and friends got together. I actually did make it down the aisle. We had this incredible reception where we had this fountain of cheese dip that was flowing. We call it queso in the States. It's amazing. But who you marry is a massive decision, and that is exactly what Proverbs 9 is all about. <clears throat> Solomon, like my parents, is trying to set up his son with a wife. But even more than that, given what we've talked about, he's trying to set his son up with the one that is to be his queen. He presents before his son the question, who will you marry or whose wedding feast will you attend? And that question is posed to us, who are the readers of Proverbs as well. Who will you choose? The point Solomon is trying to drive home to his son is the only way they're going to be able to live out the daily wisdom of chapters 10 through 30, the practical wisdom that comes from above, is by first making a fundamental faith decision to be in relationship with wisdom. So Solomon is here kind of summing up the prologue, the previous chapters of Proverbs. He's setting the stage for the rest of the book by encouraging his son who is to be the ideal Israelite, the king, to marry wisdom or to be enthralled by wisdom, to proverbially make wisdom his queen. And he has to do this in order to rule faithfully. 
Now, part of what's happening in the book is if this sort of knowledge is needed for the king, it's certainly needed for the commoners as well. And so this is not just written to Solomon's sons. It is written down for us upon whom the ends of the ages has come. And so in Proverbs 9, we come to the climax of the prologue of the book, and he basically sets before his son two choices, two paths, two contrasting ways, and he asks him to make a fundamental faith decision to be in relationship with Lady Wisdom rather than to be in relationship with Lady Folly. And then, as we will see, again, there's a crushing disappointment of Proverbs 30. This could read like a fairy tale if you read Proverbs 31 without Proverbs 30. Because at the end, he has married this amazing queen. Uh, but we will see along the way, that is likely another son, not this son of Solomon that he's initially talking to. So Solomon presents before this son two, uh, two women. They're competing for his attention. One is wisdom from above. One is wisdom from below. And that same, that same decision is presented to all of us. Now, Solomon is a savvy teacher, right? He, he's using personification to teach uh, his son, to appeal to his son. And, and we're kind of familiar with this, right? We, we have advertisers that make things that are not human, have human characteristics in order to appeal to us. Like when we were growing up, uh, there was this jolly green giant that was supposed to make vegetables appealing to us. Okay, didn't work for me. Uh, to quote Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec, vegetables are simply the food that my food eats. But... Solomon personifies wisdom as a woman. Now, he does this partially because the Hebrew word is feminine. Hokemah is a feminine word, but there's more going on. Again, he's teaching his son. He's teaching the, the youth boys of the nation. He wants them to, to choose wisdom, and so he portrays wisdom as a beautiful woman. Even more than that, in Proverbs 9, he portrays her as a beautiful woman who can cook. Because what are young men drawn to? Women and food. Kelsey and cheese dip. And so that's what's happening here in the text. And so I'm going to just quickly go through uh, and, then, and then make our applications and point to Christ. But as we look at the two different women, you'll see this uh, woman wisdom in verses 1 through 6, woman folly in 13 through 18. I want you to notice there's a lot of similarities. Folly tries to in some ways mimic wisdom, but there's also these striking differences between the two. They both invite the simple, as it were, to come be a part of their wedding feast, to be a part of their party. And the question is, whose are you going to choose? Look again at verse 1 through 3. Notice how active wisdom is in her preparation. She's built her house. She's hewn her seven pillars. She's slaughtered her beast. She's mixed her wine. She's set the table. Then she sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. She's very active. She builds. She makes this incredible meal you're going to see. But Lady, uh, Lady Folly is lazy as opposed to her. Look at verse 13 and 14. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. And she sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town. She doesn't build. She's not active. She doesn't go out calling in or even sending out servants to call in. She just simply sits at her doorway and screams at those coming by, shouting, saying, come on in here. And it seems, and it's very clear later on, her only tool is seduction. She's going to say later on, stolen water is sweet. But notice their audiences. Look at verse 4. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I have mixed. Verse 15. She's yelling out, calling to those passed by who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten uh, in secret is pleasant. 
Here's, here's the audience. They're both calling to the simple. They're, they're holding out their meal. They're holding out their banquet. Uh, both are doing so from the high places. So they're calling from the high places, which is significant. And they're calling out to those who lack sense. Literally, it could be translated, they lack a heart. We're getting a picture of, re- of regeneration even here in Proverbs. The scriptures are telling us in order to be wise, we're going to need a new heart. And just to make it very practical, you know, this, this morning for application, if you're not a believer, you will never ultimately be wise. Never ultimately be wise. Because the most important thing that's going to be fundamental about your eternity will not be settled. But it's theologically interesting, again, that they're both building their houses and making their calls from the high place. At the highest points of the city were reserved in that day for temples alone. So before the sun are two invitations, but they're not just from two women. They're from two different temples. Two different places of worship are calling out. One is from the temple of God. It's from Yahweh. And if you go back and read Proverbs 8, you'll see more about this. The other is from a temple of idols, these false gods that seek to draw away Israel and to draw away Solomon's sons, which interestingly is exactly what happens in the life of Solomon's children. But also look at their invitations, because at first glance, they may seem very similar. Again, verse 4, to him who lacks sense, she says, Come eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. But verse 16, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, he says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Again, the invitations look at first glance the same, right? Let the simple turn in here. However, the appeals are quite different. Wisdom calls us to repentance. She doesn't just say, turn in here. She says, verse 6, leave your simple ways and live. Walk in the way of insight. Instead, folly is saying, just come on in here and stay a fool. Again, part of the reason for this is, remember what it says about her, she knows nothing. She doesn't know how to tell you to turn your way, turn from the things that are bringing harm and damage. So her basic invitation then is let's all hang out in here and be fools together. It's a sad invitation when you take stock of what's really taking place. But not only are their invitations different, so are their meals. Very interestingly, verse 2, she's slaughtered her beast, she's mixed her wine. Then she says, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine. And then verse 17, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Their meals aren't comparable. Wisdom has meat, which for, again, for people like me, that's the most important part of the meal. She also has bread and mixed wine, which should sound familiar to us, while folly only has bread and water. In one sense, one has this incredible piece of meat on the, on the, uh, on the plate, the other just has a piece of bread. Most scholars believe this stolen water is connected to the sexual immorality talked about in Proverbs 5 of this man who drinks from a cistern that is not his own. And so again, we see her only appeal is to the forbidden. Indeed, it's like from the beginning. Satan's appeal to our parents in the garden is what you really need is the very thing that God has forbidden from you. It's this act of not trusting God for being good, not trusting God at his word. That could be the epitome, a a simple definition of sin, simply not trusting that the one who has created us and who has spoken to us kindly in his word, he doesn't have our best interest at heart. And so we act in ways against what he has said. Then finally, we see their outcomes, the conclusions of their party. Verse 6, leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Verse 18, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. 
The difference between marrying one over the other or going to one's feast over the others, the differences are grave. The truth is, sin may bring pleasure for a time, but we do not understand, while it's pleasant for a season, the consequences of it are devastating. The epitome of foolishness is not connecting actions with consequences. And so sadly, what we don't see, or what we see here in the text, is that many who take Folly's invitation, they don't understand that they've accepted an invitation to their own funeral. One commentator says it like this, many will eat on earth what they will digest in hell. Again, because there's is a way that seems right to a man that leads to destruction. It's very interesting uh, that you have this comparison between Lady Wisdom and then Lady Folly, and then you have these weird verses that at least seems like, at least first glance, thrown in the middle. I'll read them just briefly, but it says this, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, he will still be wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. This seems a little bit out of place, but what Solomon is doing is he is sandwiching these verses between uh, in the middle of this text to show that the relationship you're in will produce something in you. This is, these act as a test to see, are you on the path of lady wisdom or on the path of lady folly? Lady wisdom advises, if you correct a scoffer, a fool, or a wicked man, it's like, if you do that, you're going to get injury, abuse, shame, dishonor, hurt. Okay? But the wise person responds to those things well, responds in love, sees that they are for his good. The scoffer is the obnoxious, the arrogant, the obstinate. They're not willing to change. When they get correction, they're going to go ahead and really quickly let you know, don't ever do that for me again. On the other hand, if you do this for a wise or righteous man, he will love you. And the picture is he will increase in learning. This, this plays out again in everyday application, right? How do we view the pastor in our lives that provide counsel and care? How do we, how do we view those in our life that are at least bold enough and loving enough to speak into our lives? The way our heart responds to them is going to help us understand if we're on the path of wisdom or if we're on the path of folly. And that's what Solomon is doing. You know, the first time I studied this text, Proverbs 9, I started working through it. It was interesting. I had this, at this time, like this just massive pain in my big toe, okay? And, and my mom kept saying, hey, you need to go to the doctor. I had a small group leader's wife who kept saying, you need to go to the doctor. And I'm like, God, I'm a grown man. Like, I don't need to go to the doctor. It's just a big toe. Well, the truth is I had gout. And eventually I got gout in my knee. I got gout in my elbow. It actually became debilitating at, at times because I never dealt with it. What I kind of came to realize as I reflected on these verses is just how wicked my heart was. Like, I had people in my life who were lovingly telling me, you need to deal with something in your life that is, that is out of step, that is, that is causing you pain. And my reaction to them was, I'm a grown man. Don't tell me what to do. I just want to tell you, I mean, just as a way of practical application this morning, Brothers, the, the way we respond, even as pastors, the way we respond to correction is not a personality type. It reveals whether we are on a path to wisdom or whether we are self-worshippers who think, how dare would you say something like that to me? I think that's why the final verses of this little middle part are so crucial. Look what it says, because it really is telling us we need to fear the Lord and we need to know God. 
That will tell us which path we're on. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This goes all the way back to the beginning of Proverbs. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For listen to this, for by me, and who can make these promises but God alone? For by me, your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The sage goes all the way back to the beginning of the book, the beginning of wisdom. The main way that the son will rule the kingdom well is by fearing the Lord. And verse 11 tells us the outcome. If we're in a relationship with wisdom, for by me, you get life. Good life now, eternal life to come. This is generally true in this life, but it is ultimately true in the life to come. And then verse 12 tells us, it's, it's a, the concept Baptist theologians called soul competency. It's one of the most clear verses of that in the entire Bible. It's this strongest expression of individualism. Ultimately, at the end of the day, when you stand before God, it's not going to matter what church you are part of, what parents, what home. Ultimately, when you stand before God, whether you've responded well to wisdom or whether you have not, you alone will bear the consequences of that. Now, certainly, the way you act in this life will affect others. But when you stand before the judge of all the living and the dead, and you think about whether you're going to go into eternal joy or eternal suffering, it will come down to how you have responded to wisdom himself. And that's what he's saying here. If you, if you are wise, you'll be wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. So the question is, who will we choose? Who of the two will we choose? And who will the son choose? Right? We have good reason to believe the son, to, to quote uh, Indiana Jones, the last crusade, way better than number four, which is terrible. We have good, uh, good reason to believe the son chose poorly. We have textual warrant for it. It appears just from verse 1 of chapter 10, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is sorrow to his mother. And the fact that folly has the last word, it appears the son has walked past Lady Wisdom's door and has uh, just gone in to, to see Lady Folly. Again, it's this, this idea, you see it picked up in chapter 30, this crushing disappointment. Because at the end of the book, the prince will say this in 30 verse 3, I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. He will conclude in chapter 30, I'm too stupid to be a man. And if he's too foolish to be a man, he's certainly not wise enough to be a king. He laments the fact that no one can ascend to heaven and come back down. There seems to be no hope. The son grieves that unless one, verse 4 of chapter 30, can ascend to heaven and come down, there is no hope. But then the book holds out hope that there will be a prince son who will choose wisdom and rule God's people wisely and justly. We're introduced to such a king in chapter 31, one named King Lemuel, a king who is mentioned nowhere else in the Bible, whose name means belongs to God, a king who only has a mother. And when his mother speaks to him in Proverbs 31, 2, she calls him my son, but interestingly, she does so in Aramaic. The only other time in the Old Testament that Aramaic is used about my son is in Psalm 2, when the Lord says, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. And this son does choose wisdom for his bride. He takes the Proverbs 31 woman as his mate. And he becomes wise himself. He is spoken well of in the gate. And yet we know, not only from Proverbs, but as I already made allusion to, from Israel's history alone, we know that Solomon's sons will follow in the footsteps of Solomon himself. Indeed, Solomon's sons will bring shame to their mother. And they will bring heartache to the nation. Almost always connected to the fact 
that they choose pagan women who worship false gods as their wives. They will sin, they will choose folly, they will fail. And the hope that there would be a son, that there would be a a prince who would rule the kingdom by wisdom will lie dead in Jerusalem tombs. That will be until we come to a town called Nazareth. But we will see a son of Solomon of whom it is said he is choosing wisdom as he is growing in wisdom and favor and stature with both God and man. This son of Solomon, who even at 12 years old will be wowing teachers in the temple with his wisdom. The one who will speak in parables. He will speak in Proverbs. He will speak of two houses, one built on a firm foundation. The one who in Luke 14 will compare the kingdom of God to a wedding feast. And he will then send out his servants to invite all to this free feast. The one who we know will make better wine. And he's going to hold out something to us better than bread and wine. He's going to hold out to us his body and his blood. He's going to call out from another high place. He's going to call out from a hill called Calvary. Again, Paul has told us he is the wisdom of God for us. Indeed, if knowledge of the Holy One is wisdom, we are to be wise with the kind of wisdom that brings a better life and longer life. If that's going to happen for us, we must know Him. We must indeed make a faith decision to be in relationship with Him. Because the truth is, yes, wisdom is a path. Wisdom is a way of life. It is a knowledge. It is a discernment. But ultimately, we are told in the New Testament that wisdom is a person that you can know and love. And wisdom has a name, Jesus from Nazareth. And what we do, what does He do? When he comes on the scene, when he comes on the scene, he issues out invitations to the simple to be in a relationship with him. He simply says to them, leave your nets and follow me. And that invitation hangs out there for sinners like us. Will we forsake folly and follow him and choose his banquet and his banquet alone? And notice how he fixes the standards of wisdom that we all transgress as fools. Notice how he fixes the problem. The text tells us the penalty for the fool is death. The penalty for the fool is shale. It's the grave. And even worse than that, all of us have joined Folly's party at times. All of us have walked the way of the fool. All of us have been lazy, defensive, prideful, lustful, quick-tempered, quarrelsome. We have likely hated correction in our lives. Left to our own, without a new heart, we cannot walk in the way of wisdom. And so the end result for all of us will be the grave will be shale. But brothers, we, if we didn't know the gospel, should be surprised to see that somebody has been there before us. Christ has been in the grave before us. He took the place of the fool at the cross, though he had never sinned. He hung up on the cross to pay the penalty of the fool, though he had never said even one foolish word. And at the high place, at the cross, he stood in the place of the fool. He took the place of sinners. He took the wrath of God and the judgment of God due sin on himself. That being shale, suffering the final penalty of folly under the weight of that judgment And yet, how do we know he is who he says he is? How do we know he can do what he says he can do? The truth is this, because he has gone through death and he has come out on the other side alive. As the vindicated son, resurrected from the dead, the long-awaited son of Solomon, the true king, the rightful heir to the throne of David, who will establish and rule an everlasting kingdom, and he will do so by wisdom. That's how we find our way to Christ in this book, and we see it throughout. But brothers and sisters, 
question I have for us this morning as we think about even just the practical applications of this, of what we read in Proverbs 9, is how will we know which path we are on? And we see it in those middle verses. We will understand if we can receive the correction of the cross. The cross that has told us in the deepest aspects of who we are that we are sinners. Who are not right with God. We're worse than we can even imagine. That we are fools. If we can agree with the cross's assessment of us. There we will find wisdom. Because there we will find instruction and reproof that we need. For us to turn to wisdom himself in order to provide for us all that we need. If we will, it will be a sweet reminder of where we are headed as those who are found in this true king. Because what's talked about here as a wedding banquet will be picked up by John in the final book of the Bible. It's so true that marriage changes everything about the person that you are. I mean, if y'all had met me before I was married, I was fairly hopeless. I could do my own laundry, but that was about it. But marriage in this life is simply just a glimpse, just a taste of the greater wedding feast to come. Of that day in which the son of Solomon will be presented over to his bride, a bride that he has purchased and obtained at the cost of his own blood. And the gift he will be given on that day is talked about in John 21 as, as a most rare jewel, but it's pictured as a bride who will come down out of heaven, be handed over to him as he receives the reward of his suffering. And that reward will be a spotless bride made up of us in this room who are sinners, who are fools, who now he has made so wise because of faith in him. On that day, our brother John tells us there will be a wedding feast with wisdom himself at the head of the table. And he's going to serve us the best meat and the best bread and the best wine. I'm hoping queso will show up there too. So indeed, brothers, as those of us who get a chance to preach the eternal truths of the scriptures, may we just every week feed our people on this true king, this true king who has so graciously and comprehensively fed us. And we can do so in Proverbs as well. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much. Indeed, one greater than Solomon has come. Father, I pray for the brothers in this room as they think about how to preach a, tech, a book that sometimes seems like just really helpful, practical wisdom. Father, help them to preach Christ and him crucified from that book. So that those under their care will certainly have... Unbelievers are hearing them preach. They'll be made wise for salvation through faith in our Lord Jesus, but also for the saints in their care, Father, that they would be trained and instructed in righteousness as we look at the one who has given us a righteousness that is not our own. Help us now, Father. We do pray that because of this time that we will just be more faithful in giving our people the word, the word that is able to build us up and commend us to the inheritance that you have for us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. If you have questions or topics or texts you would like us to consider for future podcasts, please contact us at ChristCenteredAndClear at gmail.com. And please visit us at ChristCenteredAndClear.com for more resources.